Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, July 27th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, I got to talk to Tracy Ellis Ross. And I, I want to be clear about something. Tracy Ellis Ross is a star in her own right. I mean, she is really one of the most recognizable and best loved actors of our time. You know, particularly her role in the show Blackish just made her a worldwide superstar. But she is, and we talk about this, she always will be. The daughter of Diana Ross. And I I think when you talk to the children of famous people, it's often a weird thing to bring up because they don't want to be defined by their parents. I remember talking to Lucas Nelson and I wanted to talk. All I wanted to do was talk. I'll be honest. All I wanted to do was talk about Willie Nelson. And, you know, you can't do that because you you're there to talk about their career. But I was so happy to to be able to talk to Tracy Ellis Ross because I feel like she spoke so honestly about everything, about the fact that she's in a new movie, about an aging soul and R&B star who's trying to figure out the new stage of her life and how everyone thinks it's a movie about her mom, but it isn't. And we talked about that. So we talked about her mom. We talked about the music that she wrote for the movie herself and then having to play that music for her mom. Really lovely chat. I really love talking to Tracy Ellis Ross. After that, the great Irish songwriter Dermot Kennedy. And after that, from Kim's Convenience, Simu Liu, who is the next big Marvel superstar. And he's Canadian. Big show today, and the show starts now. Welcome to the show. It is Monday. You know when you're watching a character in a movie and you can just kind of tell they're bringing something from their own lives, something very real from their actual past into their role? Well, Tracy Ellis Ross stars in this new film about an international pop star. And you'll probably get a sense of the life Tracy's had when you find out that Diana Ross, one of the greatest American singers of all time, is her mom. So in the movie, Tracy's character, Grace Davis, is this huge star who's entering the later phase of her singing career, the autumn, if you will. And it's a role that really challenges the ideas of youth and femininity and womanhood and success. This is something Tracy's really good at. A lot of her past characters really make you confront stereotypes and preconceptions around gender, around race, around age. So the film also marks, check this out, the first time that Tracy Ellis Ross, daughter of Diana Ross, made music of her own. She had to play that music for her mom, and she'll tell you about that. But first, we talked a little bit about the movie. Tracy Ellis Ross joined me from Los Angeles. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. You, it's so nice to talk to you. Can you tell me a little bit about Grace Davis? Because I want to say that she's in the twilight of her career, but I don't even love that I think that. So tell, tell me a little bit about Grace Davis. Uh, okay. Grace Davis is an international icon music superstar who's had hits, hit after hit, decades of hits. Um, she's done it all. And she is at that phase in her career where those people around her um, and the world we live in, the culture and society we live in, has decided that she's at that place and that phase and that age where 
just rest on your laurels. You did it. Um, there's no more dreams to have. Why, why take a risk, play it safe. And, uh, what I loved about this movie, there were many things, but about this story is that it was a story of two women on parallel journeys, pushing up against what the world expects of them. Um, and Grace Davis, particularly, uh, wanting to continue dreaming, continue um, becoming more of herself and her record label thinking, eh, let's send you to Vegas mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. Uh, I also loved that this was um, a story that sort of unpacked or allowed the humanity of someone that's larger than life to be present. I feel like so often in our world, these people that touch us so deeply through their art or through their through their creativity that... Um, change our lives, we imagine them as these otherworldly creatures that aren't human. Um, And because I'm Diana Ross's daughter, um, I have this very close view um, where I know that they're human beings, you know, and I love that Grace Davis had fears and hopes and um, secrets and insecurities and that this movie kind of explored and shared them. Well, there's two things I wanted on that. One is that, um, I'll go to the second one you said. Not only are you Diana, Diana Ross's daughter, you were working with uh, Dakota Johnson, who's Don Johnson's daughter and, and Melanie Griffith's daughter. And yeah, I wondered yeah. if you were able to, I thought about that, that in these, in these roles were two people who know that these people who are treated as gods or were treated as legends are mm-hmm. people. Like, I wondered if you were able to connect on that because you both have had a very rare upbringing. Yeah. You know, honestly, we didn't. It's such a funny thing. Like maybe it was such a given between us that it was not something we had to talk about. Right. The first time we went, we went to, first time we met, we went to dinner together. And the only thing I can remember throughout the, our entire friendship now and, and during the movie is when we first met before we started shooting, we went to dinner and there was one moment where Dakota looked at me and she said, well, you know, and I knew, and that was it. I, I don't want to keep talking about that, but it just, okay. it, but it reminded me of, I, I talked to Ziggy Marley a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Have you, ever met, you met Ziggy Marley before? No. And I said, and he, I asked him, I said, so you're, you got, you got this, you got this you know, book and movie coming out about your dad, Bob Marley. I said, you know, he's like a God and his, 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 his people are wearing t-shirts of him all the time. He's he, a God. He's your dad. And he was like, yeah, he's my dad. And he said like, he says, I'll, I'll, tweet out a picture of me eating fish and people write back, oh, Bob would never eat fish. And he was like, yes, he would. I know him. Like he was a real guy. He had- Or or like no matter what picture I post, they're like looking like your mama. And I'm like, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, yes, I get, yes. Just, you know, but that's the beautiful part of it. I mean, I, I'm obsessed with my mom. I love her so much. And the Diana Ross that you guys know doesn't hold a candle to the mom that I have. Oh, so yeah. it's all good. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, walking into this film, I was not thinking about it. I was thinking about the fact that I love this story. I love this character. I was excited that I got to sing for the first time. It, since we started the press, I was like, oh my God, everybody is like, did you play your mom? Is this your mom? I'm like, no. Well, but well, I know. I, and, I, and I read the articles going into this, and I said, and he said, like, you know, one of the headlines was like, Tracy Alice Ross confronts the inevitability of people like, comparing this role to Diana. But my God, I was thinking, all right, someone who had massive success and people are waiting for new music from, someone who is, your mom did a Vegas residency. Like, yeah. you know, I, I. I think she's still in the process of it, except for the <laughs> pandemic. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, hard to do a Vegas residency right now when you got hard, about three hard. people about twenty feet away from one another. Exactly. But it, it is well. Then let's not say it. Obviously, it wasn't okay. on your mind. But I did yeah. find it interesting 
that it was your opportunity to sing and that you said that was something maybe because of your mom that wasn't always yeah. easy for you to do. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I, I sang in numerous talent shows as a child. Um, numerous. I always wanted numerous, maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually, when, when I was going to school in Switzerland and um, I sang Endless Love at a talent show with Placido Domingo's son, he sang the Lionel Richie part and I sang the mom part. And um, so I have always sang. I've always loved singing. I've known that I wanted to sing. I did it growing up. I did, I did little dabbled in it here and there. Um, I sang the uh, theme song for a television show I did at the beginning of my career that went like this. It's so funny. Because I'm a TV girl. I live in your TV and I'm a TV girl. <laughs> I want someone to sample that so bad. That's right? all I want okay. is for someone to tape that off the radio like it's 1983 <laughs> and just make a hit out of it. Anyway, go on, go on, go on. Anyway, so, um, but I don't know where along the way, I don't know if it was conscious or unconscious, but it just kind of moved to the back burner and I've gotten really busy and very successful and I have a very full life. And I think the longer you wait to do something, the further it gets out of your reach, the scarier it gets, the older you get, the scarier it gets to try something new. And then the older, I think the reason it gets scarier is because the older you are, you know what the risk is mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're young, you can try things and you're like, whatever. Um, And I think I always imagined at a certain point, I mean, I'm 47, I'm in the spring of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, At, uh, I think at some point I just sort of thought, oh, it's going to be, I'll do it in a musical on Broadway or I'll do some um, musical film. But I had no idea that the film that was going to come along that I fell in love with was one where I was actually playing a superstar music icon. (laughs) Um, and so here it is. And this is what, it, you know, it, it, it was an, a, an experience of unbridled joy and freedom for me to face a fear and walk towards a dream was just exciting and fun. But it takes time to, for any singer mm-hmm. to find what their voice sounds like. I mean, you know, oh. you listen to, you listen to like, I don't know why this is the example that's in my head, but you listen to like early Aerosmith and like, uh-huh. you know, Steven Tyler sent us like, you know, there are times when I look in the mirror, you know, really soft. And by, you know, by the end of his career, by the he's, end, just, he's, like, ah! yeah, he's just screaming love in an elevator. But it felt in this film that you had you had found it. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about the process of having to find your voice to make this Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I think that was what was the most frightening for me is having an expectation of what I wanted to sound like. The biggest treat of it all was to discover that I actually sound like myself. And you said that, what was it like finding my voice? The truth is that me, Tracy, I have found my voice as a human being. So the truth is that my job in this experience was to get out of my way, um, to actually unencumber my voice and allow my truth to come out. And it was terrifying because it's not, I am a seasoned vet in what I do as an actor, but I, this is an area that I'm not seasoned. I don't have years and years of experience, but I think for me, what the process was, was getting comfortable um, and allowing myself to like reminding myself that Tracy's fear was not Grace's fear. So get out of the way. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with Tracy Ellis Ross. The world now discovering that distinct voice in the new film, The High Note. And I'm glad, I am actually quite glad you caught to our autumn of the year comment on the way in because it leads to a question I wanted to ask you, which is about this gendered notion of aging and success. And at Mm -hmm. one point in the film, Grace Davis says, 
In the history of music, only five women over 40 have had a number one hit, and only one of them was black. And in the larger context of phrases like twilight of her career, autumn of her life, autumn of her career, you don't hear that about Bruce Willis. You know, you don't, I don't know why that's the name that came to mind, but you don't hear that about men. What do you think this film says about how society treats famous women, in particular black women, as as they get older? You know, I don't think it's just famous women. I think it is our world um, and society at large and this sort of status quo as if you get to a place in your life where you you should stop dreaming, (laughs) which I think is just garbage. Um, You get to a place in your life where you are no longer considered um, sexy and juicy and joyful and wonderful. Um, I think that this film, what I love is that it kind of touches on it with allowing the audience to have their point of view about it. Like we don't make some big statement, Mm -hmm. but there's that one moment and then you start to realize, oh, this entire thing has been telling this story. Right. And, and that scene that precedes that is one of my favorites, because there she is sitting at the, the head of this beautiful, you know, in this beautiful conference room with a table of men, most of whom are half her age, most of whom whose careers and the office that they are in was paid for by her success, her voice and her work. And they are the ones that think that they are the arbiters of her life and what she should be doing and her choices. And I think that's a larger metaphor for what we are living in in general. Um, These ideas that somebody else should have um, jurisdiction over your body, over your mind, over Mm -hmm. your thoughts, over your dreams, over your choices. And I just agree. Um, And I love that we were telling this story and also looking at the sort of absurdity of it, particularly when you get to the end of the movie and you see sort of what blossoms from there. If you're just joining us, my guest is Tracy Ellis Ross. I have sort of a acting technique question for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give it, give it, give it, give it. Okay. So your your portrayal of black women on the small screen has been really foundational for a really long time. You look at Joan Clayton and Girlfriends, Rainbow Johnson in Blackish. However, through these characters, I feel like people, maybe you more than others, they feel like they know you through them as as Tracy Ellis Ross. So Technique-wise, how much of you, is that intentional? Like, how much of you do you put into these characters? Well, I think that's a twofold question. One, um, I think that is, to a certain extent, my style of acting. Um, my One of the ways that I create is, I call it an unzipping, and I love to be honest. An unzipping. Um, so an unzipping, like a sharing of, like open up your soul as opposed to putting a mask on top of you. Um, and everybody creates differently in their acting experience. For me, particularly with television, when the hope when you take on a role is that it's going to go for a long time, and with the two shows that I've done, they've gone a long time. You know, when you're doing 173 episodes or you're going to go for eight years, trying to play a character that is far from you is not the easiest, you know? And I don't know that that's why I do that, but it's, it's been a blessing for me. However, I will say that Joan and Bo are not me <laughs> at all. Um, what I like to do is say, may that part of me known as, so that part of me known as Joan Carol Clayton come forward through this role, may that part of me. So the places where um, not the experience of Joan's life or the experience of Bo Johnson's life but the feelings 
in those experiences match up with mine. Um, one of the things about my job is that even on my worst day, I have to be my best. Yeah. Even on my saddest day, I often have to be funny. Wow. So it's allowed me um, the freedom, in all honesty, to know that there is always a part of me that's okay. Even on your bad days when you're not acting. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I'm not acting. But that's what I mean. Um, it's there when you're not acting, too. If you have a bad no. day on a Tuesday, there's a part of, I hear what you're saying, there's a part yeah. of you yeah. that, that can be okay. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, I discovered that in a way that, or in an experience that I wouldn't ever want to repeat, but it was a worthy, um, a worthy sort of life opportunity moment. Um but yeah, and so, you know, there are days. I mean, I mean, it's so funny. I have this uh, a, a conversation, that an ongoing conversation with an actress friend of mine that's so funny. We're always like, my God, can you imagine if there was a ticker tape underneath all of our scenes saying what was actually going on? <laughs> like like I, I was an hour late to work because my car broke down or like my mom and I just got in a fight or, you know. You know like I, I ate too many worst, bagels because exactly. the craft service, you know, yeah, yeah. I have the worst stomach ache ever. <laughs> like I actually am having a really depressed moment and cannot stop crying. I mean, like, like, can you imagine if people knew what was happening underneath? Sometimes it, it, it offers the most beautiful depth to a moment. It, it's, it's one of the joys to me, the um, spontaneous joys of the job that I have. Mm. It, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's, you know, and, and everybody's different with it. I personally um, find it wonderful. I, I really do. Well, how are you doing anyway? I mean, it's an interesting time because you're- living, Oh my God, it's an interesting You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and also one of the largest protest movements in American history. I just like, I mean, how are you? Um, I'm okay. Um, I'm finding my way- Right now, it's been really interesting. The phase we're in right now is that, like, to a certain extent, the pandemic has become, like, the normal backdrop. Like, it's not like when it first started where it was just terrifying. Now it's, like, terrifying in a different way. And, like, this is just what we're doing, right? You're just home. Um, for a while there, when the uprising and the movement the sort of reignited itself, because obviously it's never ended. It's been here. Um, I felt like I couldn't find my feet um, I felt very wobbly and I realized I couldn't find my feet because the foundation is shifting yeah. beneath us. Yeah. Um, and that that was an appropriate response. Um, now I feel like I, I've got my feet a little bit, but I'm not sure if my legs feel sturdy. They feel like a, a little bit sea legs, you know? Mm. Um, I find that the most helpful thing is remaining teachable and open and really um, honoring what I'm feeling, you know, and that's always the case, but I think now particularly, like it is a very strange time. Like it's a scary time. There's so much um, upheaval here in the United States. Uh, it's, we're moving into election period. Like there's just so much happening. People, you know, the unemployment rate is higher than it's ever been. It's disproportionately affecting people of color. Um, we are confronted by, in a very real way, what has been happening around police brutality um, and the oppression of uh, the system that we live in. There's so much of it, but it's like all here. I was saying to someone, it's like the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, and the civil rights era all in one moment, mm -hmm. you know, with social media. 
I wonder now, if before we go, if you could do me a favor. I, I heard this yeah. really lovely story about you and your mom, because this is this is you're singing in this film, and you have that song, "Love Myself." And I heard the yeah. story that you were you were in the car with your mom, who's Diana Ross, by the way. If people are just tuning in, yeah. um, and you played it for her. I wonder if you could tell me about it. Yeah. So. My mom always knew I wanted to sing, and I mentioned that the Diana Ross you guys know doesn't hold a candle to the mom that I have. And one of the things that my mom does that's extremely special is she really allows her five children to find their way. I guess, you know, my mom has lived her life out to such a full degree that she's not living through us. So she's really like this sort of big, loving, sunny container that kind of um, creates a big embrace around us. And so she's always known that I wanted to sing. And a matter, as a matter of fact, at 22, I remember my mom saying, it's time, it's time to record an album. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> um, sure, mom. Um, so I don't think I told her specifically what I was playing, uh, playing in this movie or anything, but I did tell her that I started to go into the studio. And when I finally felt like we were at a point where the demos, like I had, we had tried like seven or eight different songs and I had little snippets all on my phone, right? And when I had finally gotten to that place, I was like, all right, I'm ready for my mom to hear. I'm ready to share my voice with my mom. So um, I called her and I was like, mom, I'm ready. She was like, for what? What are we doing? And I was like, I'm ready to share my music with you. She was like, okay, when? And I was like, I want to pick you up. And she was like, okay, I'm dressed. Let's go. So I picked her up, put her in my car because, um, you know, that listening to music in the car is fantastic. It's like full surround sound. You've got the windows closed up. You're in an enclosed space. And so we sat in my mom's driveway, her in the passenger seat, me in the driver's seat. We were holding hands on the armrest between us. And, you know, my mom has a, a lot of hair. <laughs> so when she's looking forward, you can't totally see her face or her eyes. So I couldn't see her face. And the first song I played was Love Myself. And then um, she sort of turned her head towards me with like tears just running down her face. And she was like squeezing my hand the whole time. And she said, finally. Oh my God. Finally. Just and beautiful. I was like, you know, and then she was like, can I hear it again? I was like, yes, yes, but there's more. So yeah, that was the moment I got to share, share my singing voice with my mom. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm getting the note that I'm going to be, I think, uh, taken out of here and, and thrown into the back of a truck for talking to you this long. But oh, no worries. I, I, this is such a wonderful conversation. I love talking to you as well. Thank you so much You're for your time. Treat. You are a treat. Thank you so much. Uh, Tracy Ellis Ross is an actress, producer, and business owner. Her new film, The High Note, is streaming. Why don't we listen to the song Tracy just described? Here she is with Love Myself. I forget when I was younger it was easy. Now I'm stressed I'd always have to have the TV on. Watching my that is Tracy Ellis Ross with Love Myself. The song's off the soundtrack to her new movie, The High Note. Also, the first single Tracy's ever released. You can watch my full conversation with Tracy over on our YouTube channel. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with, from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. 
you'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You know when you have a sort of super detailed plan, a vision in your head of how things will go? And you work really hard to make it happen and you spend thousands of hours nailing your craft. But then the way things actually unfold is completely different and totally unexpected. That's kind of what happened to my next guest. Dermot Kennedy is an Irish singer-songwriter. He got to start busking on the streets of Dublin. And then his music took off in a major way. I'm talking about touring the world, playing festivals, one billion streams on Spotify. So an interesting time to catch up with Dermot Kennedy at his home in Dublin. How are you? What's up? How's it going? Uh, not too bad. Not too bad. I want to uh, play you the song. Take a listen to it. Time won't ever move slowly. What you waiting on? You what you waiting on? We used to be giants. When did we stop? Say the word and I'll be yours. You know I never forgot we were the song in the silence. But time catches up. That is Dermot Kennedy and Giants. So a couple of things I want to talk about here. Um, what I find really interesting about this pandemic time in the music or, or, or this time of great unrest and the music that's coming out on it is that mm-hmm. it is it is well suited for the moment, even though it was written long before the moment. And yeah. quite often, and I, I hear you had a similar experience with this song. Of course, yeah. And, and I mean, you definitely have to be careful currently, right? Like you don't want to bring out something that seems... super ignorant or dismissive of anything you don't but at the same time releasing music and creating music is my job and 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 that's what i'm passionate about so if you sort of hide away in times like this i don't think that's great either so it's about finding the right song and this one obviously i wrote it a long time ago but um it didn't make my debut album and i just i i always kind of it was always in the back of my mind that i felt like it was going to be important and now just felt like a perfect time for it, honestly. Well, t- tell me what you wrote it about uh, initially. Initially, what was the initial um, inspiration for it? I think initially what it was for me and, and something that I write about so often, um, the, the idea of this song is sort of accepting change and despite how difficult it might be and moving forward with hope and optimism. And what's changed, I guess, is when I wrote it initially, I applied that idea to my own life. And now... I am in a position where I can release the song and it, I, I hope it just, it can apply to where we're at in the world that certain changes need to be made and certain things need to change. And, uh, and I, it, it just felt good to bring that idea into the world, honestly, especially considering the song, like I felt like it was just, it sounded hopeful, but it also didn't sound like an upbeat sort of like song that seemed ignorant of what was going on, you know? Yeah. I mean, hope and optimism is, is hard to come by uh, these days for for a lot of reasons. You know, it's a it's a, it's a, and it's, it, it can be a uh, uncynicism can be a hard thing to access or yeah, even yeah, to be, yeah. or even to be comfortable putting out there. You know. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah. So I, I just that's I see that as kind of my like my responsibility, my small place in the world. This is what I can do. And if I've got a fan base that want to hear what music I make. If I can give them a certain amount of hope, I think that's a cool thing. Well, the hope is also at the beginning. I watched the video, like the 360 video you did, and, oh, yeah. and it starts off with this quote from the poet Leslie Dwight saying, 2020 is it, isn't cancelled, but rather the most important year 
of all of them. Um, mm-hmm. t- t- uh, tell me what that quote got you thinking about. I thought her poem was a really nice mixture of being aware, but also being hopeful. Because like I've said now a bunch of times, it just I think the main thing you don't want to do when creating throughout this time is come across as ignorant or tone deaf or something. And I thought, and I think if you reach straight for hope, it that's a tricky thing to achieve because it's just like there is crappy stuff happening, you know, like it's not all good. It's just not. And so, but also you don't want to sort of put a negative message out. So I thought hers was just a really good mixture of both of those things. It seemed like it had optimism for the future, but just that it was also acknowledging that this is a difficult year. What what feels different about writing music now? Uh, and I don't mean necessarily during the pandemic and during this time of hope, but I just mean after your debut does so well. What what feels mm-hmm. different about the actual creative process? Anything? I feel a bit more confident. Is that for so? Sure. Definitely, yeah. I... Uh, yeah, I think, and I think it's only natural, like definitely at the start, I felt like I needed to prove myself and I'm kind of desperately trying to prove myself. And so I, I think I got my own way sometimes, whereas now I feel like I'm somewhat established and I, I think it's just, I feel quite confident and it's a nice thing to know, to almost be like comfortable in the knowledge that I have a fan base and people who like what I do. So I should just do what I do and I should relax and get into that groove. And I'm getting closer to it all the time. It's funny because it can go the other way, can't it? Like it can go, it can go to like, things have gone so well. So, oh my, oh my God, now I got to put out something else, you know, like that thing went so well. I mean, what else, you know, like the pressure, the pressure is on, you know? Yeah, there could be a point because obviously I'm very determined for it not to just be like without fear part two. I don't want to just put out an album because I'm supposed to, I want it to be, I want it to mean just as much to me as my first album did and uh, you don't have the benefit of sort of writing it for your whole life. Like the songs on my first album that I wrote when I was 16 and stuff. So, um, so I just, I don't want to rush myself, but I also do want to do something special. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the songs on that album you wrote when you were 16. I wanted to talk a little bit about the early days of your career and, and take a listen to uh-huh. this. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways. Touch of a hand. Well, I'll continue making the same mistakes, hoping that you'll understand. The baby now. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Dermot Kennedy is my guest, and what you're hearing right now is a clip of him busking on the streets of Dublin in Ireland, and. Um, I mean, I know you were studying for a degree in classical music. You were studying like Orpheus and Eurydice, and and and, yes, then, indeed, yeah. and then and then you found yourself busking. So I, I'm yeah. I'm endlessly curious about the motivations and what busking gives you. So I'll, I'll start out with I'll start out with this: what what drove you there in the first place? Money, for sure. <laughs> Desperately needed. I needed it. Like same as anyone, I needed to make a living, and I didn't have a career in music. And basically the main like the first port of call was i needed to get into a studio so i needed money for that and that's why i went playing in the streets how long were you going for i probably went for the first time when i was 15 and then i'd say i bust for the last time when i was 24 25 you know and how long would you go for at a time would you go down there for eight eight ten hours or two or three hours it's an art in itself it really is and and there was days where i found myself like playing straight through for like four hours and (laughs) <laughs> and the returns on that is terrible because 
you just become part of the street and people care way less. Mm. But if you can, I learned from an Australian guy who just gave me like limitless insight into the whole thing. He was like a pro busker and he was like, set your stuff up, take up as much space as you can, get the best equipment you can get some artwork stuff that literally like will get people to turn sideways and pay attention. And, uh, he, he just said, play sets, play like 40 minute sets. So I would play like three 40 minute sets in a day and then go like, it was a long way off what I wanted to be doing, honestly. And I found it quite difficult because like, I know it's kind of funny for me to say like, why did I go was because of money, but it really was. And so there were certain songs, say that Ed Sheeran song, like I knew people would stop if I played that song. Mm. And so I got to a point where I was making these kind of calculated decisions to play songs that weren't necessarily my favorite, but I knew I'd make more money and it was kind of gross. So I didn't love it, honestly, because you can't just play whatever you want. But there's a couple of things on that. I'm, I'm interested if, when you start to recognize what songs work, even if they're not your favorite yeah. songs. But like, even if, uh-huh. when you start to recognize what songs work, I wonder if subconsciously that enters your songwriting because you know there are certain things that, uh, yeah. that you can do or one does or you're able to study sort of the art of songwriting, pop songwriting, that gets people's uh-huh. attention, you know? For sure. And, and I think maybe one thing it did do was it gave me, it gave me more appreciation. See, I've, like, I, I'm a huge fan of like Bonnie Vera and Ben Howard and, and, and those types of artists. And when I was busking, I realized, yeah, you've got these like huge hits and literally just these earworms that inevitably get people's attention. And so I think it gave me more appreciation for that and, and how some people are actually experts at that. But it's that's a whole different world. But it's a good point. Yeah, it shows you how some people can literally like craft songs that will get people's attention. I can see you in <laughs> the in the arena watching Bon Iver and going... That guy's singing exactly what he wants to sing. Not yep. necessarily meant for the radio. Everyone's incredibly yep. quiet. I want, I want some of that. Totally. And I, for a long time, I, I idolized him completely. And I, for a long time, I literally wanted to have the exact same path, you know, like go out into the woods, bring out, <laughs> totally just bring out whatever you want. And, and, and just, it becomes hugely successful and, and all that. But I think, I think their career path is like, not to sound negative, but I think it's literally impossible to follow. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a unique story and and it's just like a magic thing. And I'm so glad it happened in musical history. I just think it's really, really a special thing. I think, I think your success and the, or early days of your success are also will also be talked about in a certain way that that is sort of um, indicative of a certain moment in music history. And, and take a listen to this. Island smiles and cardigans, the nights that we've been drinking, and we're here to help you kill all of this hurt that you've been harboring. Confession should be better planned alone that night. I'm surely damn run away. I'll understand what's important is this evening. I will not forget purple, blue, orange, red. These colors of feeling. Give me love, I put my heart in it, and I think about it all the time. Life's without you will find you kind of struggle not to shine. I still love you though. That is Dermot Kennedy with An Evening I Will Not Forget, which is your your first big song. You were unsigned. Um mm-hmm. right? Like no machine, no label, no nothing. You you literally just put the song up on Spotify and it mm. and it and it happened. Yeah, yeah, it did. And I, like, 
it, it was such a beautiful time, you know. Like I basically the reason I put I put three songs up one by one, and this is kind of like I did the busking, made a little bit of money, got in the studio, recorded three songs, and I had been through this experience so many times where. I had spent all the money I had on making an EP or like making a mini album and you go and you get the artwork and you do everything and go through the whole thing and send it around to labels and all that stuff and I was just sick of not making any progress in that way and it's a very deflating feeling to put all that effort and money into it and see nothing happen and I had done that from like 16 years old to whatever it is 24 25 and uh and so this time I was just like I had this these three songs that I was really, really proud of. And I had worked on every single line, like bass line, strings, piano, everything was mine. And and I just got home and I went on to TuneCore and I put them up on Spotify and Apple and everything. Uh, and I just did it one by one because I figured like, I can't lose here, you know, like the world has it now. I haven't invested too much in it. I won't be heartbroken if nothing happens, but it exists and it's the beginning of this project. So. Mm. Uh, so and then i went to play the show in london and there was a few people there who spoke to me afterwards and they said they'd come to the gig because they heard it on spotify that day and then i checked my plays and they had gone from like a handful a day to a good few thousand and it was just this thing where it spiked so uh yeah i took it from there honestly like if i had to pinpoint a moment where things kind of turned and i felt like i got a stroke of luck that i could chase that was it probably so i guess it brings me to the question of when the, I don't want to say the wolves, because they're not, because they're not, they're good people. When labels uh-huh. and managers and agents come to your door, what does yeah. the fact that you were able to have that success originally on your own terms do to the relationship you might have with that side of the industry? Yeah, it's everything, I think. It really is. And I think if I talk to people now and they might be like, oh, you're sort of, you're path has been kind of unique and and it's a very rare thing for someone to like actually come out of nowhere and and have success like that and i i would put it down to that probably like i started getting all these plays and things started picking up and it got to the point where i was like just taking calls all day from agents and publishers and labels i was like i was on the phone and (laughs) um I, I, I'm quite ambitious, so I was really into it. Like it wasn't a thing where I was ignoring people. I was trying to handle it myself, but I was in no position. Like I don't know how to handle myself on those calls. So I thought I was being clever, but they were probably rinsing me. But um, <laughs> but but I was determined to not. Like I was never going to dive into anything head first. But the first thing I got were was a manager, and and basically the way things were headed, the way streaming was going well. We had put on some shows and they were selling out really quickly. Um, we basically decided we were like, why would we sign to label right now? So we took it like probably like almost a year further to the point that we were doing things that an independent artist like me just couldn't fund. So we needed help. But it 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 meant everything to have taken it so far and be able to show a label that and say, like, you can get in on this but this isn't nothing like you can't craft this or mold this or change this. Like it already exists and we need your money. You know, I'm glad you're able to, you can feel a bit grounded in all of this. And like, it sounds to me like I think coming from where you're from not being, and not even being Irish, but like just doing it on your own terms at the beginning allows you to stay pretty grounded. How are you doing with the not being able to play live right now during the pandemic? Yeah, it's tough. 
It's fine if it's now, but I would just love to know if there's going to be an end point, you know. What's funny about it is a lot of friends of mine have been telling me they thought this would be the time that this would be, they would be the most productive, that they would be writing yeah. songs all the time, but it's been hard to do, actually find the motivation to write songs during all this. Yeah, I have some days that are very fruitful and then some days where I just don't, you know. I, I'm probably also, like I said, I'm determined to not just churn out another album for the sake of it. So I've been writing quite a bit without the guitar and the piano just to find out what actually comes out of my brain and, and without the music, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Like writing yeah. writing fully a cappella. Yeah, and just, and, and just seeing what words I actually want to say instead of just writing songs i'm writing to see how i feel yeah oh that's very very interesting um mm. yeah it, it, it seems to me like it comes with a certain sense of gratitude when you're able to do things your own way when you're able to busk and when you're able to and then you finally get to these places where you have arenas and you're doing interviews and you're selling all these records my god the the gratitude when you think about what you would look out at on grafton street and what you look out at now in arenas i, yeah. I, I can't i i'm not surprised that you can't wait to get back up there again for sure. But it's important to, you're dead right, and it's important to check yourself sometimes and remember what it was like playing in the street because it is not that now. And uh, yeah, it, just, it means an awful lot to me to be able to play to rooms packed with people. Well, well do me a favor now before we go, because I think they're going to come and get me if I talk to you any longer. Okay. Uh, um, but do me a favor before, before we go. You know, yeah. I, I'm always interested when I talk to artists about what songs don't get played on the radio, what songs maybe don't have the yeah. same stream counts as the big ones sure. that, they, that are meaningful to them. So if there's a song yeah. we could play of yours that you think maybe could use a little bit more, uh, a little bit more love, what would it be? Oh, a song of mine? Yeah, that's right. Uh, what would I pick? I would pick a song called Dancing Under Red Skies. That's one of my favorites. What's that, what, what, tell me about it. That's, no, that's one of the ones that I wrote years ago. I think that's the oldest song on the album. I mean, it's quite a nostalgic song, and I think it's a, it's a turning point in the album where the, it kind of turns from having love into having had love and I think it's just it's quite nostalgic in that way so yeah it's an important one Sitting out of moments like the sun painted on the sea You smiled and looked down when I told you it ain't bad to be me Give me moonlight and a smile from you that I can that I can barely believe I promise, I promise we're not patting ourselves on the back here these days, but I just love, I love this new thing we've been trying out here on Q recently, which is at the end of an interview with a musician going, hey, what song do you wish people heard more often? Because oftentimes you only get to hear the single or the second single, or oftentimes there's like a track eight, which no one has heard. I think every musician listening to this understands that there's like a track eight that you wish people would listen to, but no one gets to. So I, I, I love the opportunity to sit down and go like, what do you what do you wish we played? And that's Dermot Kennedy's pick. That's Dancing Under Red Skies. We can stream his latest single everywhere now. It's called Giants. I've been doing a very um maybe a very uncue thing during COVID, but I, I've taken it upon myself to watch all of the Marvel movies. I had never seen all of the Marvel movies, so I've been watching them all in order. And I'm starting to get like, a, I'm starting to get the feeling for what's going on with these things. Like, you know, how, by the way, how CBC does this sound where I go like, I finally get it. Then this thing that like kajillions of people would like. But, you know, the point being is that even if you're not a huge Marvel fan, you probably know there are at least like a billion of these superhero movies and there's always like a billion more 
on the way. But the one that's coming up is particularly exciting. It's called Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And the reason this is exciting is because it's a first. It's the first movie in the franchise to have a Chinese superhero. More specifically, Canada's very own Simu Liu. Now, you might know Simu as Jung on the CBC sitcom Kim's Convenience, The Sun. Uh, and just over a year ago, he jumped on stage at San Diego's Comic-Con to the news that he would be playing Shang-Chi. And I checked in with Simu Liu back in May. He was in Australia shooting the movie. This is back when we were all locked in our houses. Uh, he was not. So we talked a little bit about how COVID-19 had affected production. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I uh, we were you know we were supposed to be wrapping up at this point. Um, I was supposed to be getting ready to come back home and and shoot this uh, other little TV show that uh, you know you might or may not have heard of called Kim's Convenience. Um, I was supposed to be really excited to come home, and now it just you know it kind of seems like we're all taking it day by day, and um, and yeah. Just uh, w- wishing that wishing that things were, would would go back to normal. Yeah, I know they asked me to replace you in Kim's Convenience. You know, I was gonna say I I I feel like that would be a good uh, that would be a good move. I, I think um, <laughs> if you want, if it was my sign off you were looking for, uh, you definitely have it. And I look forward <laughs> to seeing um, where you take the role of, of Jung Kim. Me too. How it had to have been hard to experience this pandemic away from home, though. Um, yeah, you know what? Um, a, a big part of it is is you know wanting wanting my my family, namely my parents, to to be safe. And and luckily, you know, in talking to them on the phone, which we do every day, you know, it's clear to me that they are really taking you know they've taken this entire situation very seriously. I know. You know, a lot of millennials have had have had some issues with their parents in, in you know, reining them in, making sure they're staying home. But but luckily, my parents were, were very much on board with that and uh, have been doing so right from the right from the get go. Thankfully, they're safe. Yeah, I, I know. I know what you mean. I mean, I, I want to go back to this role just one more time here. I mean, it was such a huge mm-hmm. news story when it came out. You were cast as Marvel's first Chinese superhero. Take me back to mm-hmm. how you felt when you found out you got the role. Yeah, it was, um, you know, I don't really remember too much about it other than it happened on July 20th, 2019 at about 6.15 PM. And (laughs) no, it was, um, I mean, it was, it was the most incredible thing because, um, you know, it was, it was at the same time so slow and, and, and so opaque in their, in their decision-making to, you know, once they did make the decision, all of a sudden being like, you have to be in San Diego in four days and you have to go out in front of 8,000 people and, of course, the entire world and, and be announced to, to everyone. And then, um, yeah, I would kind of like very little time to mentally prepare for it um, before I was just kind of thrust into it. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're in San Diego, you're at the Hard Rock Cafe, uh, the, the, sorry, the Hard Rock Hotel right next to the San Diego Convention Center. And, and I'm like watching all of these movie stars that I idolized, um, you know, sharing the stage with me. And, um, and then, you know, I'm having dinner with, with Angelina Jolie, because that's, I guess, how the seating chart worked uh, over at Marvel. And then, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to reconcile all of this in my brain. So it was, yeah, it was, I mean, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And I'll never... I'll never forget it. I don't think I'll ever go through another point in my life that was so um, anxiety ridden and, and nervous. But um, 
but I'm happy to say that I got through it. Last time you were on Q, you talked to me about how you had to fight this stereotype that Asian men, especially Asian men in acting, are seen as unathletic, you know, undesirable. And that's something you've been kind of vocal about on Twitter. And it made me wonder whether you felt an extra shot of responsibility taking on this role, an added pressure. You know what? I, I would be lying if I said that that didn't exist, right? Um, you know, going into to taking, taking on something that's like not only, you know, a, a superhero role, but, but like, you know, like you mentioned, the first, you know, the first of whatever it is, whether it's, you know, a Ch- yeah, Chinese superhero, Asian superhero in the MCU. I mean, I definitely did feel that going in. The, the thing is, we have a director by the name of Destin Daniel Cretton, and he is just incredible and amazing. And uh, I watched all his movies going in and I just kind of fell in love with each and one of the, each and every one of them from, you know, short term 12 to his most recent Just Mercy, which was, you know, just one of my favorite movies to watch ever. It was just so incredibly powerful. And um, in sitting down with Destin, you really just get a sense of what he expects out of his actors on set. And, and for, for us, it was very clear and very important to him that, um, that I kind of, go in feeling as free as possible because I think, you know, it's, it's very normal to feel nervous and it's very normal to feel like you want to do a really good job, but where I think it starts to impact your uh, freeness as an actor is where maybe we could, we could tone it down a little bit. And, and so he really helped me realize that, um, you know, as much as you can put pressure on yourself, you know, in, in any other time of, of, of the day, when, when you're on set and you're ready to work, you gotta, you gotta just throw it all away and be free. It's it's such a beautiful story. I read something you wrote recently. Uh, I was I was wondering if you if you tell it if you feel okay with it about being a, a superhero at birthday parties. Yeah, man. Um, well, the the premise of the story is simple, and that's that people need to make money to survive. And um, when I just started, when I started out auditioning. I obviously wasn't booking very often because I wasn't very good at what I was doing. Um, but I did have a, I, I did always have a knack for doing backflips in my backyard and all that junk. So um, I, I was kind of browsing through Craigslist as one does when they're an out of work actor looking for you know gigs of any sort. And I came across this um, this superhero and princess birthday party uh, company. And so yeah, I. Um, sent in my details. I, I got the job, uh, of course, only playing superheroes where my face could not be seen because obviously I couldn't uh, play any of the ones that existed at the time. And, um, and, and that sustained me for, for, you know, the better part of uh, a couple years. And, um, you know, sometimes they're really good experiences, you know, being in front of a lot of kids can both, you know, be extremely rewarding and just like maddening, depending on um, how the how the particular child was raised. So I definitely uh, I definitely ran the gamut with uh, with the quality of birthday parties that I had to do. It's it's such a beautiful story and I don't want to poke at it on the nose too much here. Mm-hmm. But to have to be in a in a in, a, in a, at birthday parties where you have to wear a mask because you don't look like any of the superheroes, to becoming one of the superheroes that people can look at the screen and say, "Wow, there's a superhero that looks like me." Seem like these these things don't happen. I mean, it's it's sort of a movie in itself, you know. 
It is. And, and, you know, what's crazy is that the story, the story is actually even great when you, when you, you know, factor in, like I, you know, wrote this tweet that was so tongue in cheek, you know, a couple of years ago about, you know, when Marvel first announced the the movie, I was kind of like, Hey, Marvel, are we going to talk or what? Like it wasn't meant to be serious or anything. It was just, um, you know, I didn't know any better, you know, it was just uh, something that was off the cuff at the time. And then, you know, even, you know, years before that, I had the opportunity to write and direct a short film as a part of one of Actra's youth um, initiatives. And so I, I actually wrote, uh, produced and directed a short film about a superhero called the Crimson Defender. And, you know, it's it just, it's weird. It's weird. And, you know, like Steve Jobs said in, in one of his speeches, in one of his famous speeches, you know, you can only really connect the dots looking back, but it really, it's it's crazy how much, as I look back over my life, I've been fixated by this idea of superheroes. Um, I guess I've always just really loved reading about them, um, kind of feel like the, you know, the Greek gods of our time, you know, and, and very mythical figures. And um, I, I bought into it. I ate it all up. I love reading comic books. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of weird, kind of weird knowing that my face is going to be on action figures at some point. I'm, I'm not someone who believes in the universe thing, you know, and the manifesting thing. And if you believe in that, I'll more power to you, but it's, it's not really my thing. But it's, it's hard not to see the power of belief in yourself when you look at your story, you know? God, it really is on the nose now that you, know, that you think about it. But yeah, yeah. I don't think it's anything really esoteric or like, or like supernatural about manifesting energies in the universe, but I definitely do think that, you know, you attract, it's this general idea that you attract what you, what you put out. And I think at least part of that must be true. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it in a socially distanced beer very soon. Simu. Sounds good. I would love that. When you can have carbs again. Oh God. Good. I'm on a break. Oh, you can have all the, you can have all the beer you want. Yeah. We don't know how long, I mean, we don't know how long this hiatus is going to last. Okay. I mean, it would be foolish. It would be foolish to commit myself to a full on diet without carbs or anything joyful for, I mean, we don't know how long this could last. You know, I, I could, you could be potentially looking at no carbs yeah, you're right. for, for, for six months. I mean, that's just not, that's just not feasible. Yeah, I know. And I've had a pretty good 33 year streak of eating carbs and drinking beer. So I got to keep it up. I, honestly, I think you're doing it right. I think you're doing it right. I think we have a mutual friend, Kumail, who <laughs> is, you know, very famous, famously and vocally, you know, scorn off carbs or any, or any cake or, you know, sugar of any kind. And like, honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So I'm going to have a chicken nugget right now. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about this. Um, the first thing anyone sees on your Twitter profile is this tweet from January, and it's related to COVID-19. Mm. You said, just reminding you that the coronavirus doesn't give you an excuse to be a, we'll say, a D to Asian people. What's the story behind that tweet? Yeah, well, the D is a, is a very bad four-letter word that's sometimes used to describe a man. I'm kidding. Um, well, <laughs> the, the tweet comes from, <laughs> you know, when 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 news first came out about this virus and that it originated from, you know, Asia, it's particularly China. Um, I think it, it birthed a lot of, you know, really racist and xenophobic rhetoric that, you know, somehow all Asian people were responsible or, you know, because of all of their, you know, certain things about their culture that, um, you know, that, that, yeah, that they, that they were responsible basically for the, um, for the coming of, of this disease. And then as 
I think as the world became more and more affected, um, that rhetoric actually only increased. And when, you know, certain world leaders even insisted on referring to it as a Chinese virus, I think that kind of stoked the flames even more. And so what we saw not only in Canada, but around the world really um, is an increase in, in kind of Asian violence and whether that was, you know, fully getting attacked on the street or just being verbally assaulted, um, even being bullied online. Uh, we're seeing more instances of that uh, than we have in a, in a really long time. And so, um, yeah, again, I put out the tweet in much the same fashion that I do anything, which is very tongue in cheek. But, uh, you know, as the weeks went on, it became more and more important for me to kind of to kind of make sure that 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 the world, you know, was stayed reasonable and stayed and, and stayed compassionate and stayed good. And so it became a priority for me to make sure that, A, that, you know, all Asian Canadians or Asian Americans or, you know, wherever have you, Asian Australians, um, you know, felt like they belonged because I think it's so easy to look at someone regardless of where they grew up, where they came from, the language that they speak, to just look at the color of their skin and all of a sudden reduce them to harmful stereotypes. And, um, you know, now more than ever, I know people are, at home and they're anxious and they're maybe a little testy, they're a little angry, they're looking for someone to blame that, um, you know, that we make clear that, that you know, th this isn't the fault of an entire race of people, um, nor is it the fault of any individual really. And, and, you know, what we need now in this time more than anything else is, is just more compassion, more caring, stepping up for each other, stepping up for our communities, for frontline healthcare workers and supporting in any way that we can. Simu Liu will be starring as Marvel's first Chinese superhero, Shang-Chi, in the upcoming movie Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. I spoke with Simu back in May when the film's production was on a hiatus in Australia because of COVID-19. The film is scheduled to resume production by the end of this month, but while you're waiting, you can catch Simu on Kim's Convenience on CBC Gym. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here's some news for you. I don't know if you caught this in the news newscast, but it's worth repeating. Uh, the Oscar-winning actor Olivia de Havilland has died at the age of 104. She's best known for her role in Gone with the Wind, a film that has since been criticized for its whitewashing of the horrors of slavery in the American South. In Gone with the Wind, she played Melanie Wilkes. Here's a little bit of Melanie. Gone. I'm so glad to see you. You have so much life. I've always admired you, so I wish I could be more like you. In that movie, de Havilland played a naive, beautiful, doe-eyed character. But in real life, she became known as a bit of a fighter. She challenged Hollywood after becoming frustrated with a contract system that encouraged typecasting. She wanted to take on more complex roles, so she fought a court case that made it easier for Hollywood stars to turn down roles they felt pigeonholed by. Olivia de Havilland went on to play roles considered to be less conventional, such as an unwed mother, a psychiatric patient. Her career spanned over six decades. Olivia de Havilland died yesterday at her home in Paris at 104. Here's another story now. A Montreal band is trying to help you with a problem we all face these days. Going out the door for some groceries and realizing halfway up the block that you forgot to bring your mask. Bleu Jeans Bleu has been hugely successful in French Canada, you know, 
something really funny, like a funny band that also writes really catchy songs. And for the song you're hearing right now, the band partnered with the grocery chain IGA to help you remember to bring that mask. Here's a little bit more. And before we go, some sad news from the world of music. Peter Green, guitarist from the band Fleetwood Mac, has died. He was 73, a statement saying he died peacefully in his sleep. Peter Green is one of the most mythic figures in pop music history because he was the leader of Fleetwood Mac back in the day. He sang and played lead guitar uh, way before Go Your Own Way or The Chain. Fleetwood Mac was known before that as this incredible R&B and blues band. He's considered to be one of the greatest British blues guitarists ever, up there with like Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. And he struggled with the success of Fleetwood Mac. He struggled with the idea of making money from his art. He struggled with drugs, with mental health issues, and he ended up quitting the band in 1971 and was rarely seen for decades until he started performing again in the 90s. In 1998, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame alongside Fleetwood Mac, new and old. Mick Fleetwood, who was in the band with Peter Green, has stayed through it all throughout its, its, all of its incarnations, and he said, Peter, I will miss you, but rest easy. Your music lives on. Here's Peter Green and some old school Fleetwood Mac. I guess if you know, like, go your own way, Fleetwood Mac, it's hard to it's hard to know or hard to believe, I should say, that that's what the band first sounded like. Peter Green, lead singer and guitarist and really leader of the band back then. Uh, that's a song called Oh Well from 1969. Peter Green, uh, original leader of Fleetwood Mac, has died. He was 73 years old. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, you are going to hear from Courtney Marie Andrews, who uh, this is one of my favorite things that Q can do is just show you a new songwriter who you may have never heard before and just ruin your life because these pieces that she just writes very lovely and uplifting, but also occasionally very sad songs. So, you know, get the Kleenex out, buddy. Get the podcast tomorrow and just buy one of those travel packs of tissues, you know, or be like my, my nan. She used to keep tissues in her sleeve. Did your nan ever do that? Your grandmother ever do that? Well, mine did. So, you know, get the tissues in your sleeve and listen to Q tomorrow for Courtney Murray Andrews. We'll see you then later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.